Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. If you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz, before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com. Remember, this is a live podcast and we encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer at the end of the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. John Cavanaugh receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. He's the executive director of Restore Brain PLLC and owner of Manage Brain in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Art Taka is an adjunct professor at the St. Louis University School of Medicine and he is a clinical director at Mercy Medical Center in the Department of Psychiatry. He receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. He is the founder and owner of Restore Brain PLLC, an investor and managing partner at Greenbrook NeuroHealth. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Our mission here at Keys for SLPs is to explore keys for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan through conversations with SLPs, as well as patients, caregivers, and collaborative professionals. For this episode, we have the opportunity to bring two collaborative professionals to discuss transcranial magnetic stimulation and current research exploring the use of this technology to treat patients with cognitive communication disorders, and Dr. Arturo Taka. John Cavanaugh has worked in behavioral health management and distribution for medical devices and services for the past decade. His passion for research and development of personalized behavioral health genetics and neuromodulation devices began in 2012. He collaborated with Dr. Arturo Taka to advance neuromodulation devices in behavioral health and addiction and contributed to a peer review study in the Journal of Alcohol and Drug Abuse. He was instrumental in pioneering percutaneous nerve field stimulators for opioid withdrawal, which led to FDA clearance. John Cavanaugh has been at the forefront of utilizing transcranial magnetic stimulation for the treatment of major depression. 
He is an active member of the National TMS Society and a past member of their National Insurance Committee. Dr. Arturo Taka, Jr. MD, is currently Medical Director of InSynergy Alcohol and Drug Treatment Program in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Taka is triple board certified in general psychiatry, addiction medicine, and preventative medicine. He completed medical school at the University of the East in Manila, Philippines, and general psychiatry training at the St. Louis University School of Medicine. Along with providing innovative addiction management services, he is a provider of transcranial magnetic stimulation for treatment-resistant depression and OCD at Greenbrook TMS NeuroHealth Center and medical director at Restore Brain TMS. Dr. Taka is an adjunct professor at the St. Louis University School of Medicine, where he teaches medical students and residents in psychiatry and addiction medicine. He is a clinical director at Mercy Medical Center in the Department of Psychiatry. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And that might be the longest introduction I have given. <laughs> so welcome, John Cavanaugh and Dr. Art Taka. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about transcranial medical stimulation. Thanks for inviting us, Mary Beth. Glad to be here. Well, we That's are great so, to be here. so happy to have you both here. So this is kind of a new topic for SLPs, and it's great for us to learn something new. So let's dive in. Can you tell us, define, what is magnetic transcranial magnetic stimulation and how is it used therapeutically? Sure, I'll take this one, Mary Beth. Transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS therapy as it's often called, is a non-invasive therapeutic device-guided stimulation product that is out there that simply uses magnetic fields to cause an electrical current at specific parts of the brain and through electromagnetic induction starts to be able to impact the neurons of the brain. It's oftentimes and mostly widely used in the area of depression, specifically treatment-resistant depression. As I mentioned earlier, it's non-invasive and it is very effective. It's, a, it's done in a physician's office in an area where the patient comes in for about 20 minutes meets with one of the uh, physicians to set up the initial visit. And then after which the TMS coordinator treats the patient over a period of seven weeks, each day, five days a week for 20, 20 minutes, the patient comes into the office and has treatment. And then it's finished a total of 36 treatments, 36 treatments over the course of seven weeks. That's correct. Okay. okay. And is the treatment pretty much the same each time or, or does it vary as you go along in the process? Great question. The initial treatment is what's called the motor threshold or often called the MT. That one is a little more, takes a little bit more time. That one is sometimes about a 25 to 30 minute initial meeting. And that's where the, it's physician guided. There's always a physician on, on site, but that one is, is where the physician is actually guiding and making sure that we locate the magnet on the left prefrontal cortex properly. The positioning it is different for each patient. We go through a process to assure that the location of the device is comfortably placed upon the left prefrontal cortex and that it's stimulating the right part of the brain. The subsequent 35 treatments are much quicker and a little less time consuming for the patient. All right. That's fascinating. So how was TMS developed initially? And can you tell us a little bit about the research that led up to it being used for this purpose? Sure. In the mid-90s is when we started to see doctors 
And specifically, Dr. Barker was the very first doctor who took on the idea of seeing if you can impact the cortex of the brain through magnetic impulses. Prior to that, it was you only had things like ECT or a direct impulse to the, to the scalp or the skin, which was much more invasive and, and quite uncomfortable for the patient. The idea of being able to use magnetic impulses is an impact the brain and affect the neurons was done in his research and his studies. Shortly after that period of time in 2003, you saw uh, for the first time, Canada actually approved, approved TMS therapy. Shortly thereafter, then you saw the FDA follow where there was larger studies done. And in the area specific to depression, as we mentioned earlier, treatment resistant depression. A year or so after that, then you saw the American Psychiatric Association consider the treatment of depression for TMS therapy as a standard of care. Once that was done, then you just saw kind of a large awakening. There was lots of different studies worldwide about TMS therapy. A TMS society was formed internationally where people started combining all that research. And then the real commercialization of it began. In 2013, you saw wider coverage, not just by Medicare, but also by a growing number of insurance companies. Now today, there has been tens of thousands of different research studies outside of the depression area. And you have treatment-resistant depression, though, paid for by almost all insurance companies widely throughout the United States. It's also indicated for OCD. And it's also indicated for smoking cessation by the FDA. Okay. Can you just define treatment-resistant depression? Some of our listeners may be familiar yeah. with that. And, and Maybe I can uh, take this one, John. Maybe uh, backing up why this technology was so groundbreaking, this innovation was so important for us. As John was saying, there was researchers <clears throat> that studied how magnets could, could affect nerves. And the original studies were not looking at the brain, actually. They were studying how magnetic impulses could affect peripheral nerves, for example, in the arm. So they perfected this technology. And the aha moment came when, when the uh, inventor of this technology said, well, we, we, there's nothing that we have that could you know, stimulate neurons in the brain. And this was important because in, in depression, well, in psychiatry, depression is one of the, among the worst conditions we have in all of, actually all of medicine. It's one of the top uh, disabilities of the world. And people can really become very disabled from, from depression. Now, the therapeutics we had were mainly medications. And we knew that we were struggling with the uh, effectiveness of medications. These medications were developed over you know, a, a, number of the, a number of years, starting in the 60s, starting with a class of medications called the, uh, the tricyclics and the MAO inhibitors. And then in the 80s, the SSRIs, and then grew SNRIs and other, other psychotropic medications. But collectively, we still struggled to get a, you know, a good response. And uh, there was one big study that the government did, and it was called the STAR-D trial. And it looked at thousands of people in a relatively real-world environment, and they followed people with depression, and they, they categorized people into four levels. And they concluded, well, what happened was they started uh, level one with people with major depression, and then they gave them a typical SSRI that was available, and they started with a medicine called citalopram. 
And if they couldn't achieve remission, they would go to level two and uh, switch medications, level three and level four. And this was a combination of SSRIs, SNRIs, lithium, mirtazapine, and thyroid hormone. This, these were common approaches for depression at the time. And collectively, we found out that as we went down, depression was harder to treat. But collectively, we didn't get much remission. It was about 30% collectively, which is, is terrible. So, and also medications have side effects. There's a cost to them. There's uh, systemic side effects. So you could take a pill, but it, ha- it can ha- have effects distant to the brain. It could have heart problems. It could have sexual drive problems. It could lead to obesity, weight gain, sedation, lots of bad side effects. Sometimes the side effects were worse than the actual depression. So when we, when we discovered TMS and uh, there was a signal that showed that stimulating a part of the brain, specifically where we believe that depression lived, may save us from a lot of uh, side effects. It's not a systemic treatment. It is focused on the left prefrontal cortex. And we believe at that area is where depression or that part of the brain is dysfunctional. That's why it was so groundbreaking because the therapeutics we had at the time were not very good and sometimes worse than the actual illness itself. And so that's why it was so groundbreaking to the world of psychiatry, because we didn't have very effective therapeutics. The only other uh, brain stimulation we had was treatment called ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which is very, it's still to this day, believe it or not, very, very effective and and, and very difficult, hard to treat psychotic disorders and and depression. However, there's, there's a lot of risk, there's anesthesia, there's memory loss, and we only save those to the, for the real difficult uh, cases. We didn't have a lot of good, effective, safe therapeutics at the time. So that puts it into perspective, historically speaking. Two questions as we're talking, I can only imagine the other type of therapy, the, the electric stimulus, but the side effects with that. Are, are there any side effects with TMS therapy? And what is the patient actually feeling during, during the therapy, during the process, feeling and hearing? Well, it is a, it's a very safe procedure. And like I said, like John said, the first event or the first session is called the motor threshold. That's when the patient and the doctor sit under the uh, treatment uh, device and we uh, locate coordinates to where, because everybody's a little bit different anatomically, and we want to make sure that we're hitting the perfect spot. And that takes a little bit of time, about a half an hour. Once we get the, the precise area, it's marked, and we give, we give the, uh, the, the therapy, which is about 19 minutes. Depending on, there's different manufacturers, some of them going as long as a half an hour, and some newer ones, they have these uh, new experimental therapeutics that, uh, that use different frequencies and wavelengths. It's called Theta Burst, and they can uh, provide the therapy within three minutes. But the, the standard delivery is about 19 minutes. And like John said, it's Monday to Friday for a total of about 36 sessions. So that goes from six to eight weeks. And the patient comes into the office, lies in a comfortable chair. They're completely awake. And because it is a magnet, it's put over the the scalp uh, area. And because it is a magnet, it has to go through the muscle first and then into through the the skull and into the the uh, the brain tissue itself. 
So there is a little, the most common side effect is discomfort at the area of, of placement. Some people may, may feel a, uh, a tapping. Some people may develop um, a headache. That's the most common side effect that people complain about is discomfort at the, the site of the treatment. The most feared side effect, which is a very, very rare one, is, of course, seizure, because we are targeting the brain, and there are uh, people who are on medications that actually can reduce the seizure threshold. So uh, people who have medications or maybe abusing alcohol have a lower threshold for seizure, and this, this may cause it. But it's a very rare side effect, and I think the, the numbers is one out of every 60,000 treatments, there may be a risk for, for a seizure. So it's very important that we get a, you know, a, a good history of what medications they were on. And if there's any, any history of substance use or alcohol use prior to treatment. Okay. And then when they're actually getting the stimulation, do they hear anything? Cause I'm thinking of an MRI machine and a loud noise. Yes. yes. It is noisy. And depending on the manufacturer, some are noisier and some are quieter than the others. But we recommend that regardless of the manufacturer of the device, we provide them with foam earplugs. Some people may have high uh, levels of tinnitus and that may become more uncomfortable, but it's, it's uh, standard that we, we uh, try to mitigate those MRI clicking that you, that mm-hmm. you know about, because it can be kind of quite loud. So aside from the side effects that you mentioned, are there any side effects that would occur, you know, after the actual procedure takes place? Usually the lingering, the most common lingering complaint is a headache. And uh, it doesn't happen to to everybody. I'd say about a third of patients will will complain with with a mild headache that could be easily treated with uh, over-the-counter analgesics. But there's typically no dizziness. There's no uh, memory loss. There's no cognitive issues. They can drive to to the office and drive home. There's no need for monitoring. They can receive the, the, the treatment and drive home safely. Excellent. Well, that sounds, compared to side effects of pharmaceuticals, that seems relatively minimal. Absolutely. All right. So currently in the United States, the FDA has approved the use for Resistant depression, OCD, and smoking cessation. Is that correct? Is there any, am I missing anything that is approved? At this time, those are the, the, the top three. If it has to do with the brain, and we'll talk about that later on in, in today's topic, if it has to do with the brain, there's high level, level one uh, research going on currently. But right now, the United, the, the United States FDA has uh, first originally cleared it for major depressive disorder and then OCD, and most recently, uh, smoking cessation. Okay. All right. And what is the success rate with each of those three? Well, if you can imagine, the the people who qualify uh, for um, treatment for for TMS in context of of major depressive disorder, they have failed typically several different types of medications. Sometimes they've they've even uh, received ECT. So treatment resistant depression is, it differs depending on, on the insurance uh, language, but each insurance company will require a different amount of uh, different tr- failed trials of, of medications and, and psychotherapy. The one outlier is, uh, is Medicare. Medicare only requires one failed trial of an antidepressant to qualify for a TMS treatment. 
So it's a, it's a hard crowd, Mary Beth. It's these people are are are, are struggling. They're suffering, and they haven't gotten relief from uh, any of a number of of treatments. With that being said, some of the studies that, uh, or most of the studies consistently have shown at least uh, a 70% response rate to TMS and up to a 40% remission rate. And remember, these these are tough patients already. So those numbers are quite outstanding uh, if you take in context the type of patient that, that gets TMS. And can you define for us the difference between the response rate and the remission rate? Well, depending on which, in in psychiatry, we don't have blood tests to to determine, hey, you're cleared of this illness or a brain scan. We typically uh, use a a number of different scales. The one scale that we we use is, uh, it's a quick screen that captures most of the depressive symptoms and we, um, we follow the score from the first to the end. And uh, there's other scales like the Madras or the Hamilton D, and they all kind of capture similar kind of uh, symptoms. And depending on what remission or response is, response typically is you know 50% or more reduction and remission is close to more, more to 70 or 80. And sometimes we see PHQ-9 scores drop to, you know, close to one or two, which is almost, you know, eliminates some of this. But most of our patients really have shown a, a, a very, you know, uh, robust response to reduction of, of symptoms. And depression is, is, a, is a spectrum of symptoms. It's not only sadness. So we see a lot of uh, other symptoms improve. For example, vegetative symptoms of depression, energy, anhedonia concentration, anxiety, all these kind of on, on top of feeling sad. So uh, some, someone may feel uh, depressed, uh, have a high score of depression and, and, and just uh, sleep all day. Um, and their, their response may be they're more energetic and they have more motivation. So depression can look different in different people. Thank you. And John, did you want to add something to that? I think, yeah, I think what Dr. Tag is saying is really important. The, the other thing that we, we see in the clinical study support is the durability of TMS therapy. You know, that patients who do have that good response rate, a good number of them a year later at the study support that are still in remission, a little over 60% of the people without further TMS therapy still are, are who reach remission, still are in remission a year later. And uh, that, that's what we find is that it's an interventional psychiatric therapy that lasts a, a long period of time. Okay, so let's say there's someone that goes into remission, and a year later, they're still in remission, and three years later, they are not. Could they have another round of treatment of TMS therapy? They certainly, they certainly could. You know, there's different qualifying insurance things that we have to navigate, and they're all a little different, as 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 we know. But generally, if they've had a good response rate, most insurance plans value that down the line and and look to use TMS therapy, and, and it's recommended for that that patient. And then, as far as the frequency of what's allowed by the FDA, is there is it only recommended only? you know, every, every year, every two years? That's a good question, Dr. Tag. I don't, I don't know if there is an FDA limit on there. Dr. Tag, do you know no, that? No, there's no language that the FDA is not 
in the business of uh, of that. Usually, we hear kind of those caps from insurance companies because mm-hmm. they want to, uh, you know, cost is uh, an issue for them. We know that depression, like like lots of uh, chronic relapsing conditions like diabetes, is chronic and relapsing, and there's no cure for this. So if you if you kind of put it side by side with uh, with diabetes or high blood pressure, would you take somebody off their your medications if uh, if they're doing okay and then they have another relapse or another recurrence of their of their uh, situation? Would would you would you not offer that that therapeutic? So in mental health, we're kind of catching up with with regular medical. Uh, standard of care because we're kind of, we've been treated very poorly and uh, we've always had the stigma keep us in the dark ages. We always thought that depression was, you know, something uh, that wasn't real. Uh, it was personality. And, and, and along, along with depression, you, you have the addictive uh, disorders. So same with addiction. A lot of, there's a lot of good uh, medical treatments for addictive disorders. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on. And insurance companies have been slow to respond to cover treatments, effective treatments for addictions, just like uh, effective treatments for depression, because they they weren't uh, considered to be real medical disease states. So we are kind of catching up, you know, depression, addiction, anything, you know, the dysfunction or the dysfunctional organ that of our, in our neighborhood is the brain. And we're, we're beginning to understand that, you know, the brain's a very, very complex organ. And uh, we, we thought that, you know, the brain and the spinal cord, just one big, you know, glob of something, but we're beginning to understand that there's different neighborhoods in the brain that you can stimulate uh, to get an effect. And we're learning that with, with depressive disorders. But we also know that if you have a stroke in, a, in, a, in an area of the brain, or if there's a trauma or a concussion, um, to a part of the brain, then, then there's function that can lead to uh, cognitive issues, speech, language disorders, and and therapeutics like TMS could be one day a, a standard of, of treatment for many brain conditions. That is so exciting to think about. We also may treat, um, as SLPs, may treat some patients who could be treated by TMS now as well. So for example, like a patient who had a laryngectomy, who is struggling with smoking cessation, or another person who may have had a stroke, who also suffers from you know chronic long-term treatment-resistant depression. Can you talk a little bit about how it is used for smoking cessation? Sure. So the the area of interest in addiction is a little different location, a little different neighborhood in the brain. You, and we call it, it's a part of the deep part of the brain. And the areas that, that we're interested in addiction is called the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. And this area is responsible for um, endorphin release and reward. And so in addictive disorders and lots of other things that cause uh, uh, reward, this is the reward pathway. And some people genetically are are lacking or deficient in in dopamine, and they may find or discover that alcohol, nicotine, or even food can provide the endorphin. So we've located the part of the brain that's that's involved in, in reward. And there's some real exciting brain stimulation techniques 
that have looked at this area and when stimulated can, can have effects to reduce craving. You know, we're talking about this transcranial magnetic stimulator and, and that's kind of on top of the head and that targets deeper structures in the brain. I am aware of a, a, a neurosurgeon in West Virginia that is uh, doing some groundbreaking work with deep, uh, deep brain stimulators, which he implants in this area of the brain. And he's having some tremendous success with opiate uh, addiction. So OCD, depression, and addiction, they all uh, live in different parts of the brain. And that's where TMS kind of, that's where the, the energy is, is focused on. So for example, depression, we, we put the we put the magnet on the left prefrontal cortex, right, right here. And then the um, for OCD, uh, we target a deeper structure in the brain called the insula. And then uh, finally, we talked about the, the addiction, the, the, uh, the smoking cessation, and that uh, targets the, a deeper part of the brain called the uh, uh, ventral tegmental area. Okay, which that kind of brings us into um, another area we wanted to talk about. So that this is where... Uh, TMS is being used now, but in the future, uh, there's a lot of research being done now where it could be used to treat some other neurological conditions and cognitive communication disorders. And we talked a little bit before, and Dr. Taco was kind enough to research some things, some areas where this might be used, uh, where SLPs uh, work as well. So let's dive into that. Yeah, well, you know, like I was saying, you know, you the 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 areas of dysfunction in uh, in your work is specific. It's specific for uh, speech language disorders, cognitive disorders. So if it uh, has to deal with the brain, there are volumes of of uh, current high level one research uh, studies going on. As John said, I think John, you you referenced to ten thousand. I mean, it's not only in depression, but uh, studies in all all facets of the brain, and you know there is growing evidence of support for the use of these uh, non-invasive brain stimulation techniques, such as TMS, and another kind of stimulation called transcranial direct stimulation for the for the treatment of acquired speech and language disorders. Uh, I found several studies that have documented positive effects of inhibitory repetitive TMS to to right Broca's areas homologue. Uh, on language recovery and non-fluent aphasia post-stroke. Also, there are lots of studies that showed uh, improved language outcomes subsequent to high-frequency TMS applied to the lesioned hemisphere that's also been documented. There's been um, uh, studies that, that showed Im improved articulary uh, function and speech in response to stimulation with uh, uh, TMS in Parkinson's disease. So it's, 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 it is suggested that use of stimulation techniques in combination with more traditional therapies may represent the most innovative future approach to the treatment of uh, these acquired communication disorders. So I think standalone, it, we need more studies, but uh, what we're seeing is uh, along with the traditional therapies, it, it really may uh, become uh, part of the standard care. Um, I also found recently that there is a growing interest in, in the area of working memory improvement for, with the use of TMS. Um, as, as your, your uh, members know that aphasia has traditionally been defined 
as a language impairment due to the disruption of blood flow to the brain, which can result to reduced ability to comprehend or express oral or written language. And what I have seen in, in the literature that there has been a beneficial effect with a type of, of, of a TMS, specifically the theta burst type of, of stimulation. What is theta the theta burst? burst? Theta burst is something that's going to, it's more commonly being accepted as a more kind of a, kind of a TMS 2.0 where it's a different, it's, it's, a more, it's a more concentrated uh, amount of, of, of energy and a shorter amount of time. So theta burst is a different, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a different uh, energy level pattern because it's shorter. We can, we can, um, we can do a, a theta burst uh, treatment in three minutes as opposed to 19 or 30 minutes. Okay. So that's what we're, we're looking at now. It's uh, the theta burst uh, technique is right now more, more in the research stage and in universities and labs. But I, I, I think we're going to be hearing more about the theta burst shortly, just because it looks like it's, it's more effective and it's, and it's quicker. So we found, we found a beneficial effect with working memory on naming, reading, reasoning, communication, and quality of life. And it has a lot of, I mean, the implications for this, for, for this uh, non-invasive brain stimulation com- combined with your traditional working memory training could enhance language impro- improvement. That's what I was uh, kind of seeing the, most of the literature pointing to. It's also uh, important to consider that the aphasia treatment programs could benefit from these type of neuro rehab, rehabilitation to increase the, the, the pace of recovery, especially during the first months of rehab. And as, as we know that, that, that that's a crucial period of time in the first few, you know, few weeks of, of, uh, of insult, especially post-stroke. So the results that I found on working memory provided preliminary indication that the stimulation using, using theta burst in the left prefrontal cortex. So we're using the kind of the, the, uh, the depression uh, model, you know, we're using the left prefrontal cortex combined with computerized working memory training after left hemisphere stroke may, may, may enhance uh, language improvements. I also looked at some brain trauma studies and, you know, just by definition, brain trauma can be a, a, a variety of things, but brain trauma is generally associated with cognitive impairments, with uh, emotional behavior disorders. It's not as much of a slam dunk, although many studies have reported positive effects of cognition in these patients, the, 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 what, what we, what you call in your field, the diffuse axonal uh, insult. Is that, is that right? The DAI, mm-hmm. it may be too vast to it, it's the, 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 the research is inconclusive, but we did see that some of the, the brain conditions, mostly from studies with dementia, notably Alzheimer's as well as the depression showed, showed uh, an increase in cognitive performance possibly because there's a great deal of depression associated with those conditions with dementia and Alzheimer's and, and possibly the depression lifts and, and communication and cognitive performance uh, improves. That's just a theory there. It's, it's a hot bed for, for therapy, for uh, I'm sorry, for, for research, the VA currently recruiting people with uh, you know, all sorts of uh, brain uh, injuries. And I know that they're very, very interested in, the, in this space. Now, what's been around for a while is this post-stroke area. 
And as we know that uh, it's very important to, 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 to uh, implement your therapeutics within the, 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 two, the two weeks post-stroke. I found a, a study in the uh, Neuro Rehabilitation and Neuro Repair uh, Journal in 2021, and they studied post-stroke patients and, and TMS. And what those researchers found that they scanned the brains of stroke survivors over 12 months and found in the initial days following an ischemic stroke, the brain had a greater capacity to modify its neural connections and its plasticity increased during that, 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 that period. Post two weeks, the changes are, are, are not, uh, not as robust. People who suffered a stroke have a narrow two-week window of opportunity for the brain to repair itself and maximize recovery. And in this study, they found that the capacity, the capacity of the human brain to recover and rewire itself peaks around two weeks after stroke and diminishes over time. And there, it's just more responsive to treatment. And what the researchers found out was that they, based on earlier experiments with experiments with rats, showed that within five days of the ischemic stroke, they were able to repair damaged limbs and neural connections more easily than if the therapy was delayed until 30 days post-stroke. So the, uh, the therapy they studied was TMS. So the researchers used continuous transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, to repetitively activate different hemispheres of the motor cortex to, to measure brain plasticity. So their assessment showed plasticity was strongest around two weeks after stroke in the non-damaged motor cortex. Con contrary to what they expected, there was no change in the damaged hemisphere in response to, T T uh, to uh, TMS. So I, I think the, the takeaway of that is it's essential that you, you, you implement the therapy, whatever it is, but it did show that the, uh, that the, the participants did respond favorably to TMS therapy two weeks post-stroke and a very safe and well-tolerated th uh, therapy too. Well, thank you. Thank you for that review. So um, down the line, we could be hearing about it being uh, FD approved for some uses for post-stroke patients, but not right now. That's correct. That's correct. John, did you want to add anything to that? I think, I think what the doctor is stated is, is, you know, the, the many areas of TMS therapy and, and, the, and the growing and the growing interest in it. The society itself, the TMS society, is a is a small society that that we've both been members. Dr. Taka, I think, would you start in 2013 or so, back back in the beginning, and myself for the last uh, uh, three and a half years. And it is a welcoming society and uh, probably one of the larger uh, leaders of neuromodulation type um, therapies. And uh, they, they're an inclusive clinical group who I think would find a great interest with the SLPs out there uh, joining in their participation. And uh, so you, you can uh, find them obviously on the, on the web. And, and I, I think for those people who are interested in pursuing this type of uh, treatment and learning more about it, um, they would, they would uh, find a, find a welcome home to, uh, to discuss um, amongst their colleagues. Well, thank you. Thank you. It is a national or international society? It's actually a national society. I think I, I misspoke earlier saying it's an international society, but there are um, there are there are international um, groups out there um, who have done uh, studies throughout the world in TMS therapy. 
And so I think you'll find, as Dr. Talkin pointed out, if it, if it has something to do with the brain, you, you find some level of, of TMS. And, and as a non-clinical person, I, I find it always interesting to attend the events each year um, with many of the, uh, the, the leadership uh, of clinicians there. And what's most commonly uh, reported is if you were here last year, or the year before, and you're here attending and you brought your notebook you can rip out a lot of the pages because a lot, lot new to learn. And, and, you know, the brain is very, very uh, innovative with, with all the different things that we're finding about how it, how it reacts, um, not just to therapy, but what, how it actually uh, as an organ, the interactions and, and what, and what causes and the effects that the brain have. And it's, it's just a fascinating uh, area to study. It is fascinating. Well, I just want to remind our participants, if you have any questions, please write them in the chat. Um, it's such a great opportunity to be able to speak with both of you about um, TMS. And you also have been involved in some different research uh, aside from TMS. So we'll see if we have any questions from our participants, but and we will answer those. But in the meantime, can you tell us about some of your other projects that you're working on or have worked on that might be interesting to SLPs? Well, I, I think we can talk about uh, what we have intimately been uh, involved with, uh, John and I, uh, since uh, 2013, that not only uh, has special interest to your group, but I, I think uh, many people, along with people in your group, have, have possibly perhaps had lost somebody or having someone struggle with substance abuse. Uh, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and the uh, COVID is the star of the show, obviously. But uh, we have, uh, we, we still are in the middle of an opioid epidemic and that has not gone away. And we, we have been knee deep in this uh, with, with our uh, projects, um, along with treating depression and treatment, uh, hard to treat depression. Uh, we have been uh, involved in um, addiction treatment um, options. What we, what we, uh, are most proud of is the development of a of another device called the NSS2 bridge, and um, we we uh, developed this uh, because of a, a a dire need to 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 focus on a specific uh, uh, part of opiate addiction, mainly uh, withdrawal management. So it's so important that we have therapeutics for withdrawal management, or else. Uh, people who are suffering from uh, addiction to opiates uh, have this kind of cycle where they're using, going to withdrawal, using, going to withdrawal, and then, and then end up overdosing. And so we developed a device that, um, that was uh, FDA, FDA cleared in 2017 specifically for opiate withdrawal. And at that time, there was nothing, including medications, that was FDA cleared or indicated for the space, so we're very, very proud to, to, to be part of that. And so what, what we essentially did was take a device and that uh, uh, delivered low frequency um, electricity and targeted parts of the cranial nerves that were, that were accessible uh, on parts of your face and in your, on the side of your ear. So if you can imagine your brain and then deep part of the brain is the brainstem and the brainstem has 12 cranial nerves and those 12 cranial nerves has different functions. It controls the head, the eyes, the taste, the smell, the hearing. 
And there's one particular uh, nerve that goes all the way from the brain and goes all the way down to the organs. And that's called the vagus nerve. So we purposely targeted four cranial nerves uh, because we felt that understanding the function of, of these cranial nerves could be helpful in reversing the symptoms of opiate withdrawal. So there's 12 cranial nerves. So we targeted cranial nerves uh, five, seven, nine, and 10. And we located them, their nerve endings on parts of the face and around the ear area. And what we did was we found out that doing that could uh, provide stimulation directly into the, uh, the brainstem and uh, disrupt pain signals. And that's what is dysfunctional in opiate withdrawal. There's a lot of, you know, there's an there's a electrical thunderstorm going in the brain and all sorts of things are, are, are uh, not working. And that's why you have uh, a variety of symptoms, including you know, pain and uh, nausea and vomiting and high heart rate and chills and anxiety. I mean, it's, 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 it's a long list of symptoms. And many of those, or most of those symptoms was, was pretty much governed by one nerve and it was the vagus nerve. And so it, our theory was if we could access the vagus nerve and uh, flip its uh, hyperactive um, state, we would able to calm down all that. And, and what we found was it reduced the, uh, the scores from, you know, uh, we, have, we have a scale for, for that called the COWS, the Clinical Opiate Withdrawal Scale. And um, our, our typical patient had a score of 20 plus. And within 30 minutes, we got them down to close to a two or three. And wow. so what was happening was immediately the, the symptoms were being uh, managed. They were walking out your door very, very comfortably, and they were able to transition to medication-assisted therapies, such as uh, naltrexone or buprenorphine. And the, the hardest thing for an opiate-dependent uh, person to do is detox and go on to these medications. These medications protect people from overdose. And many times they, they just couldn't get to a point where they were detox and able to um, get, get onto these life-saving medications. So we found a way that we would use this device to transition them onto these medications. That's why we called it the bridge. So we bridged them from being very, very ill and sick to you know, detox period, and then uh, onward to um, uh, medication-assisted therapies, and um, and that was th that was uh, born from our understanding of of the again our brain and what's dysfunctional. People would would sometimes say, ah, they're just going through withdrawal; they deserved it. They really didn't uh, appreciate really what's going on and what's the dysfunction. It's the brain. And so we took a good look at it and we said, what is really causing the pain? What is causing the anxiety? What's causing all the, all the, the neurologic symptoms? Let's attempt to address it. Let's target the nerves. And, you know, we got lucky. And, um, you know, hopefully this will, this will also be uh, eventually part of a standard of treatment. It, it, despite being FDA uh, approved for this specific uh, space, um, insurance companies, uh, again, are slow to respond to things because everything has a cost. And uh, um, so hopefully, you know, people will recognize this as a very important tool and uh, use this because we are still in a terrible uh, epidemic that's killing, you know, 100,000 people the last 12 months. 
So sad. And John, did you want to add to that? Well, I was going to ask the doctor, I think your electrical thunderstorm is a really good analogy for what's going on when somebody's in withdrawal. Can you speak to the issues of what we what we studied and, and along with Dr. Miranda um, in his separate um, analysis with the amygdala and what's kind of going on in that midbrain, uh, you know, is, is yeah. what's really going on technically yeah. with the brain and why people feel yeah. Um, yeah. the fear and anxiety. So there's one part of the brain you might have heard of. It's called the amygdala. And it's part of the deep brain. There's two parts of it. And, and it really, it's there to remind us that things are bad and dangerous. So when, when it lights up, it makes you anxious and it kind of tells you, get out. Okay. So if you, for, for instance, if you put your hand in a fire and it hurts you, that memory would be filed into the amygdala. So the next time you saw fire, it would say, don't do that. It's going to kill you. So uh, that's, kind of the idea about PTSD. That's why people with PTSD, they get these, these, these terrible memories filed into the amygdala. And when something sounds like a gun, they freak out because the amygdala is saying, get out. So we know anxiety and memory lives in the amygdala. And so these uh, um, dysregulated hyperactive uh, uh, signals have to go through the amygdala before it hits the, the top of the brain um, when you're in withdrawal. So that's why there's a lot of anxiety. So we found out with another colleague of mine uh, in rats, we put this NSS2 device and we saw the amygdala's uh, firing re- almost immediately reduce by 65%. Wow. And that kind of validated our, our, our observation that when we put these uh, patients on this stimulator, that not only that it interfered with their, their pain signals, but their anxiety was tremendously uh, reduced. And it was because uh, we feel, and we theorize that it's the the ability to reduce the firing of the amygdala. So again, you know, the the brain is a very interesting, complex organ, different neighborhoods can make you anxious, make you, you know, have deficits in so many uh, um, arenas. And if you can localize it and find a therapeutic for it, could be a possible gateway for for a treatment. So exciting to think of of the potential with patients um, who SLPs treat as um, patients who have cognitive communicative disorders, as well as you know being someone in in this country in 2022. It seems like most people know of someone um, with an addiction. So to think of these uh, the promises of medicine. Um, it's, it is very exciting. One, one thing, can you define for us, because um, even though we deal with um, insurance, it's not always, um, we're not really as familiar with F- the FDA approval process. So when I initially spoke to you all about this topic, about um, TMS, um, as, as well as um, this type of therapy, I thought, oh, if it's FDA approved, then no, we're good to go. Um, but that's not so. Can you so can you just um, gloss over yeah. that? Yeah. So the FDA is in business to make sure that uh, therapeutics, mainly uh, medications and devices, are safe and, and safe and effective. Uh, medications and devices have two different pathways. Uh, we're most uh, familiar with the uh, the medication pathway where you have to have a placebo effect and it has to separate from placebo. You got to have uh, safety studies as well. In devices, a little different. Uh, they have devices are uh, categorized in three different buckets: uh, class one, class two, and class three. 
class one and two are considered to be uh, safe and not, not harmful. Um, and a lot of these could be uh, over-the-counter uh, products like a, like a tongue depressor actually is a class one medical device. A blood, really? a blood pressure or a wheelchair, they're class two medical devices. Now the class three are more a little, they're a little bit more dangerous and require uh, uh, more stringent uh, safety uh, studies, something like a, a, a implantable device, things like that. So uh, for example, our, our bridge device is a class two. So um, it, it, uh, it um, basically it's a safe uh, uh, device and once it's it's um, uh, uh, cleared, now now uh, medications are indicated for a specific space. Devices are cleared, so it's just two different kind of languages. Okay. So when I say it's cleared by the FDA versus it's clinically indicated, it's two different things. And even though it's cleared or indicated by the FDA, it doesn't mean that it's going to be uh, you know. And and a lot of people are seeing that. So you got a real nice. Uh, medication that doctors want, want to uh, give to you because it's more effective, but your insurance says, no, it's too expensive. So it's kind of that type of fight. But we were, we were able to, uh, our team, including John, uh, were able to go in front of CMS. CMS is the centers uh, for, uh, it's basically Medicare. And we um, asked them, we were in front of uh, the, the, the panel uh, three times during the pandemic, uh, trying to um, convince the, the panel that this device and devices like it uh, deserve its own code uh, called a Hicks picks code. Now, if we had a code, then insurance companies could refer to that code and, and reimbursement could be a little bit more smooth. But uh, the feedback we had was, uh, you know, we need more, more uh, level one research and we're just not there. Um, we're, there's only a few people playing in this kind of space. So our hope is more people be interested in this technology, do you know very elegant uh, level one research studies that could replicate what we did in our study. And uh, e even with that being said, it takes years for insurance companies to get on board. Mm -hmm. So it's two fights. You first get something cleared or indicated by the FDA, make sure it's safe. And you have the ability to, um, when, you're, when, the, when the FDA uh, blesses you, then you can, you're able to market it. The next level is who's gonna pay for it. So I don't know if that, it's very confusing. And we learned a lot during the last several years in trying to get this uh, out, but we're not gonna give up. And I think it's very important that uh, hopefully um, this whole movement of electronic uh, neurostimulation, uh, wearables, even uh, visual, um, uh, virtual reality is playing a part in uh, how we, um, uh, assess pain and anxiety and all sorts of cool stuff. So again, it's a, it's a brain, it's a brain story. Well, it, it's an exciting time to be part of this brain story. And, um, we certainly do appreciate both of you coming to keys for SLPs tonight to share information on TMS and, and research about what's out there that we might be seeing, um, in our field, as well as some of the, um, at what's going on in addiction as well. So, um, you know, one thing you did say a few minutes ago, a hundred thousand people have died in the last 12 months from addiction that's in the U S uh, yes, yes, yes. And yeah. doctor, do you know what the numbers are with COVID? 
Well, at one point, um, we didn't talk because COVID, again, was the star of the show. In, in certain parts of the, the United States, deaths from overdoses was outpacing deaths from COVID. And this was at the height of the Delta, namely in big cities like San Francisco. And if we had another hour, we could talk about, you know, this addiction thing. We're, we're in what we call the fourth stage of the opiate epidemic. So before we had the, the pain pill addiction, uh, followed by the, um, by the heroin, rise of heroin, uh, followed by uh, fentanyl and carfentanyl. Now the fourth stage is, you know, uh, methamphetamine and, and fentanyl uh, combinations. That's what's killed, those two combinations are killing people at tremendous rates right now. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that information with us. And thank you for being on Keys for SLPs tonight. We really do appreciate it. Uh, before we go, I would like to remind everyone that if you are joining us for this live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete the course modules, including the one that says quiz, but before the end of the day today on speechtherapypd.com. So, okay, well, thank you. You know what? Um, it would be wonderful to have you back to um, talk about some of the addiction medicine. Um, and, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I did not see we had a question in the Q&A. So um, if you wouldn't just put it. Mind. Have it okay, let's see. Has this therapy been tried with nursing home patients severely depressed? Also, has this therapy ever been tried with the concussions of football players who are depressed, either um, professional college or high school players? I'm, I'm happy to answer, particularly the first part. Um, as Dr. Taka pointed out, and we spoke earlier, for patients who are in nursing homes, they typically tend to be Medicare patients. And that's, an, that's a very good uh, uh, choice of patients because of um, the um, access that Medicare gives us for this treatment. Um, when medication failure for a Medicare trial and failure of a therapeutic dose is the only thing that's required. So those patients um, um, are, many of them do qualify. Um, there are some challenges in that particular space, particularly during COVID with access limitations. And I think that's particularly why some of the, some of the um, depression has been you know, increased over the last two years during during COVID, and we've seen that. Um, there are people I know, you know, in in the particular business of TMS who are going out to do some outreach programs in into the nursing homes, um, and uh, you, there there's some different things that are required. Often, if you're doing that mobily with IDTFs and things like that, that I could bore you with. But the fact is there is an overwhelming need of um, to, to treat those patients in nursing homes. And um, I think Dr. Taka talked about uh, some of the concussions um, um, earlier in head injuries, um, or, and we didn't dive into it deeply. But um, people who have those who still, you know, qualify under treatment resistant um, depression, you know, multiple medication trials or failures um, may be comorbid. Um, with treatment resistant depression would certainly qualify. Dr. Tiger, you want to speak to maybe more of a, uh, with more precision about um, anything you know about that particular area? Well, the CTE is a real thing. And I think we're starting to learn, you know, the, 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 the problems with CTE could, could uh, range from depression to severe mood swings to suicidal ideations. It's, it's a different 
if you want to call it a mood disorder. And, and, be, and it's mainly because of repetitive, uh, you know, concussion, concussion of the head and the brain. Um, I know there's been a lot of uh, focus on that. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, people, uh, sports, uh, you know, representatives of sports uh, teams look, look at uh, TMS. Um, it, it does require a, um, a commitment. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, to provide until after, I guess, the, the, the person is not playing. Uh, they're, they're, they're thinking of trying to, you know, offer this currently to people who are showing signs of depression. But again, that one, one of the challenges, you know, you got to be there every day. In the life of a football player, a current football player is a little challenging. But I know that there's a lot of interest in trying to, to uh, um, offer these kind of therapies to, to these, uh, these uh, football players. And it, it's a real thing. Um, I think a lot of people just think that, well, in the beginning, they thought that some of these players were kind of spoiled, rich, uh, reckless uh, people, but uh, it's not. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of people who suffered and, and had either suicides, had uh, brain, op, brain biopsies and showed distinct changes in the brain. So um, it's a story that still has to unfold, but yes, there's a lot of interest in trying to you know, provide this therapy to, to people with that condition. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate both of you and um, we hope that you might be able to come back and um, have a great night. Thanks for having us, Mary Kay. Mary Beth, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I like Mary, Mary Kay, Kay too. <laughs> Thanks, Mary Beth. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.